Well, the message today is going to um, feel more like two sermons, two mini sermons. You're hoping two mini sermons. <laughs> I got two things on my heart that um, I'd like to talk with you about today. You can take your uh, study guide out of the bulletin and follow along. You'll kind of see where I'm heading. One side says the vision. 2007. I want to talk about that a little bit, and then we will talk about James because it fits with uh, it fits with the bigger picture of what we're talking about. If you need a Bible to uh, follow along with us, we've got some right back here in the back, and feel free to jump up and get one of those. Um, if you could just return it when you're, we're done this morning. How many of you have ever done the Google Earth thing on the computer? You seen that? Isn't that the coolest thing? You start out at about you know, 30,000 feet and then come crashing into where you're at. I want to do the Google Earth view of the church today for the next few moments, if I could. Talk about the bigger picture. I think it's a good exercise for a church to do every now and then. Step back, get the view from 30,000 feet so we can kind of see where we fit and what our place is in, in, in the larger story of what God's doing in and through this church. And I want to start by asking a pretty big question, and the question is, why are we here? And the answer is to glorify God. That is why we are here. That is, that is the reason for our existence as a church. Amen? Amen? We exist to glorify God. We're not here to build a monument to any person, to any man. We're not. We're here to magnify the greatness of Jesus We're here to make his name great. We're here to spread his fame among the nations. We're here to to keep Jesus Christ center stage. I love the way Ephesians 3.20 says it. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And to that I say, amen. Amen. May this church always be about God's glory. You say, well, doesn't that go without saying? No, not anymore. Because too many churches have gotten sidetracked and have ended up putting a man in that role, building a church on a man, on a celebrity, on a, on a dynamic personality, and it doesn't work. We should wake up to the fact, have, you know, we've, we've heard and seen the the steady stream over the years of disastrous stories of churches that were built on a personality. The face of a man should never get superimposed over the face of Jesus Christ. This church exists for the glory of Jesus. We, I realize we do some things around here to keep Jesus center stage. One is every weekend when we gather, we spend 20, 25, 30 minutes in just praising and worshiping Jesus, just to, to lift our gaze to him. We do team teaching around here. I realize that this is something I believe deeply in and I've never explained why. <laughs> but I, I believe in team teaching. I'm a product of team teaching. I think, it, it, I think God's people need to hear God's word filtered through different personalities. And I think it keeps you know, one person from, becoming, from getting on a pedestal, which is actually being set up for a fall. The reason for our existence is the glory of God. May it be so today. May it always be so. But how? How is God glorified on this earth? How does God receive that glory that I'm talking about? And I 
just after reading and studying the Bible for many years, I'm convinced that God receives the most glory on this earth through transformed lives. Through the lives of people that are being changed, that are being transformed by Jesus. Because when that happens, then Jesus is seen to be a mighty, powerful God, right? When someone's life gets changed, then all of a sudden there's stories to tell. And, and Jesus' fame gets spread, gets spread abroad because someone's life is changed. So if you ask me, what's the, what's the driving passion of this church? It's to bring God glory through transformed lives because that is what brings him glory on this earth. Jesus said, I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. And in the Bible, fruit is always transformed lives. The, the fruit of the Spirit is our life being transformed to become more like Jesus. Bearing fruit, fruit that will last, fruit that will remain, are the lives of other people's touch and changed by the power of Jesus Christ. Our driving passion around here is life transformation. I got a call this past week from a husband who said, my wife was involved in a ministry there at the church that's put on by church members, and she came home a changed person, different person. I'm like, yes! <laughs> this is what we're about. It's what we're to be about. If you ask me, what are we trying to do here, Steve? What are we trying to do? I would say it this way. We are trying to help self-centered suburbanites like me, like you, like our kids, like our neighbors, like our coworkers, like our friends. We're trying to help thousands upon thousands upon, upon thousands of self-centered suburbanites be transformed by the power of Jesus Christ into radically generous, sold-out followers of Jesus who are deeply satisfied in God and God alone. Not in material things, not in possessions or positions or achievements or stuff but satisfied in God. That's what we're trying to do. If this church ever stops being about changed lives, transformed lives, then you ought to go somewhere where that is the business of that church. Because Jesus is in the business of changing lives. Amen? Bringing God glory through that. The reason for our existence is to glorify God our driving passion is life transformation, which glorifies God the most. So how does that happen? How do lives get changed? How do lives get transformed? We know that ultimately God is the one who changes people's lives. But we have a part in it, and I'm coming to some conclusions about what the church's role is in, in life transformation. And I think what we can do is offer four things. Four life-changing exposures. One is people, two is truth, three is environments, and four is experiences. Think about that for a minute. You and I are changed by coming into contact with changed people. Would you agree with that? That's what happened with me. I was pretty much going along, doing my own thing, and then I met somebody who was a transformed person, and it made me want what he had. It made me hungry. And it gave me hope. It's like... Maybe it's possible, if it, if it can happen for you, maybe my life could change. Being exposed to transformed people makes transformation seem possible to us. 
That's why we encourage each other just about every week here to get involved in a small group. Get around some people who are hopefully being changed little by little into the image of Christ. One of the things we're going to start doing more often on weekends is is letting new life people tell their stories of transformation. And um, let me just tell you, you do not want to miss Easter at New Life this year. You don't want to miss it. Um, if you've got other plans to be gone, cancel them. If you're going to go see Aunt Gertrude in Wapakoneta, have Aunt Gertrude come down here and come to Easter at New Life. She'll be blessed hearing the transformation stories of many, many New Life people. And then take her out to hometown buffet afterwards. And it's a double blessing for Aunt Gertie. Aunt Gertie. <laughs> Exposure to transformed people changes our lives. Exposure to transforming truth changes our lives. Say, what are you talking about? I'm talking about this book. The truth of this book makes transformation in our lives likely if we're taking it in. And I need to ask, are you in the Word these days? Are you reading it? Are you listening to it? Are you? I mean, this book is unlike any other book, is it not? This is the Word of God. This is the truth of God. It's why when we come together on weekends, we always open the Bible, don't we? We read God's Word. And in our small groups, we we open the Word of God. It's why we challenge each other to set aside a time every day, a quiet time where you go to your den or your study or your loft room or wherever you go and you get alone with God and you open the Bible or you turn on that CD, the Bible on CD, and listen to it or read it and and get God's Word into your life. Get it into your bloodstream so that you're starting to think the thoughts of God. Transforming truth and being exposed to that regularly makes transformation likely in our lives. And then transforming environments and experiences change us. They make transformation actually happen in our lives. We have all kinds of environments around here for children and students. And um, I think our ladies, we had a ladies' retreat this weekend. Any of you ladies go? <laughs> it's just one of those environments where if you, if you get in it, God it gives God the opportunity to change you a little bit. We're starting a new, a brand new environment this week, Tuesday night. It's called The Mix. It's um, where people from different generations can come together and, and, and worship God and seek God together and, and form some friendships and some relationships and see God begin to work in their lives. Transforming experiences are a big part of, of changing, aren't they? I'm thinking of... Um, some of the, the experiences that God uses most to change us are experiences of pain and suffering. Wouldn't you agree? And these are not orchestrated by us. These are orchestrated by God. Experiences of pain and suffering. How many of you have seen significant change in your life because of pain and suffering? Can I see that? Yeah. And we would not orchestrate these if we could, would we? And we don't offer any classes. You know, there's no pain 101 here or... Adversity, you know, disaster 495 is not offered here. This is the school of life that God puts us through to change us a little bit. One of the experiences I'm realizing changes us the most, in addition to pain and suffering, is going on a short-term missions trip. Seeing something different than, than the, the typical landscape that you see every day. This, people always come back from these trips changed. 
Their eyes are open. Their vision is expanded. Their faith grows. They've been involved with a team of people, and that changes them. Prayer experiences, all of that. We've put in your bulletin this week a a newsletter type of an article that explains all of our missions trips and outreaches and relief trips and stuff like that that we're offering this year. We've been praying this year that 250 of us would take God up on that and would go. It will be a life-transforming experience for you. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want to just do church. I don't want to just do church. I don't want to just do the religious thing. I've done that. I want to be part of a vibrant, living community of Christ followers where there's a steady stream of lives being transformed every week, week in, week out. That's what I want to be involved with. Lives being changed so that Jesus is being glorified and people are are praising his name for rescuing them. I'm thinking of people who are doubters transformed to become people of faith. Talking about People filled with fear becoming confident. Broken people becoming whole. Guilty people finding forgiveness and cleansing through the blood of Christ. Talking about wounded people finding healing through Christ. Addicted folks finding freedom. Weak people becoming strong. Lost people getting saved. Broken people becoming whole. Self-centered people becoming radically generous, giving their lives away every day to bless other people and bring them to Christ. That's the kind of church I want to be in, where that's happening and Jesus is being glorified. Life transformation. Now you know our strategy, our strategery for making this happen. With that in mind, what's our vision for the future? You say, where are we going in this church? Where are we headed? And I've come to realize that this church is is large enough to where our vision can't just be um, like single. It's got to be multi-layered. Plus, Jesus said, go into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth, right? And I'm starting to view it as a threefold vision here at New Life. There's a local component, there's a regional component, and there's a global component that God is calling us to. What's the local piece? What are we trying to do here in Gehanna and the east side of Columbus? What's that about? We are trying to become the most dynamic life transformation center that we can be. If God has called us to be in the life-changing business, then let's be the best we can be. Amen? We don't have to be like every other church. I mean, we can borrow and get ideas and stuff, but God's got a unique thumbprint for this place with this leadership team and and, and you, the people who attend here. Let's just yield ourselves, surrender ourselves to God and say, God, use us to the max in the time that we have here to bring Jesus' glory by lives being changed. The most dynamic life transformation center we can be. You may not realize it, but there are people whose lives are being changed every week here through this church, through you. We did some videotaping this past Thursday night of new lifers just coming in and telling their stories. I'll tell you, it was spine-tingling. 
to sit there and listen. And, you know, the Kleenexes were being used like crazy because people's lives are being changed by Jesus through the ministries of this church. But it doesn't stop here. It doesn't stop with our community. It goes regional. God's called us to do something. It started almost eight years ago. It's called the 2020 Vision. See, we believe the church is the hope of the world, but one church can't do it. We want to be involved. We still want to be involved in starting churches in and around central Ohio. 20 in 20 years is our faith goal. The 2020 Vision, we call it. Wouldn't it be great if no matter where you lived in the central Ohio area, in or around the Beltway or in Columbus, you were never more than five or ten minutes away from a New Life-type church? New Life DNA? (laughs) You know, if you've ever wondered if we're still committed to the 2020 vision, wonder no more. We are as or more committed to it now than we've ever been. Four churches have been started through this church. People who once sat where you're sitting took a step of faith and went out and helped to start four other churches. And there's a fifth one in the incubator right now. About seven and a half months pregnant. About ready to pop out of there. And last weekend, while you all were listening to uh, Claude speak the word here, I got to break away and go down and worship with this new congregation, New Life Community Church of Pataskala, meeting at the uh, Grand Host East down there. And I'll tell you, it just... I was overwhelmed with how I felt just being there. It took me back 22 years to when we started this church. The excitement, the enthusiasm, you know, people, church members who just stepped out on faith and said, I'm going to be a part of this. You'd be proud. You'd be proud of Pastor Ben and his team and, and how they're working and ministering there. They haven't even launched yet. And they got about 50 people coming, about 30 adults and 25 kids. Lots of kids. (laughs) And they've got visitors. I mean, I was there last week. There was a couple of visiting families because now their their name is on the marquee of that banquet facility there, Grand Host. I'll tell you what, I don't know if that juices you up, but that gets me juiced. (laughs) A new church that's going to be reaching out to that area, the Pataskala, Black Lake, you know, that whole area there, and seeking to glorify Christ through changing people's lives. I would love to just see this church spin off a new church, a new congregation every every year or so and bless this community. That's our regional vision. But it doesn't start there. It doesn't stop there. It goes to the world. There's a new term that's been coined recently. It's the term glocal, which is global and local together. Glocal. Say that with me. Glocal. We want to be involved Glocally, in global transformation, local and global. And our global vision for this church, we want to be a church that touches the other side of the world, amen? And it's coming together. We're starting to see three elements to our global vision. Number one is planting churches in that part of the world that's called the 1040 window over in Southeast Asia and India and that area. That's where most of the unreached people groups live. I'm talking about people who have never heard the name of Jesus, do not know that their sins can be cleansed and forgiven by his shed blood. Haven't heard his name. I mean, think about that. The name of the Savior. 
We decided a long time ago, we want to be involved in planting churches in that region of the world. And right now, that means partnering with movements that are starting hundreds and thousands of churches. You remember when Bobby Gupta was here a couple months ago, planting churches in India, like tens of thousands of churches? We want to be involved in fulfilling the Great Commission, maybe even in our generation, getting the gospel to the world. That's the first piece. The second piece is Africa. Africa has gripped our hearts in the last couple years. As it, It's something God's doing, I think. People are awakening to the tragedy, the travesty in Africa and, and what's going on in that continent that's been marginalized for so long. And specifically, we want to be involved in relieving suffering and helping the poor, specifically as it relates to AIDS. And it's just ravaging that continent, just wiping people out by the tens of thousands. I think it's pretty cool that about 50 of you, after you heard about it, decided that you would get involved and and you would sponsor an AIDS orphan after our team came back from Uganda a few weeks back and that need was presented. 50 of you stepped up and said, you know, it's worth it for us to spend you know, 25 bucks a month to help clothe and provide food and shelter and education and, and the gospel to a child orphaned because of AIDS. We want to be involved in that. This is the mandate of Jesus to help the poor and relieve suffering. The third piece is something we're just starting to explore, and that's finding inroads into the Muslim world for purposes of evangelization. Finding a way, finding a way, getting creative, getting innovative, finding a way to make some inroads with that community. And we all know what's going on in the world with the Muslims. Asking God to show us a way. Will you get involved with the global vision this year? Would you consider it? Maybe you've never before even considered it. Would you you at least pray about it? Read through that newsletter, check out those opportunities. Maybe God would call you to go. I'll tell you what, your eyes will be opened, your vision will be expanded, your faith will be increased, your life will get transformed. The last piece of this is our mission statement. And we crafted this about a year ago. And I'm seeing it now more as the proof or the primary evidence that we are being transformed by Christ. Our current mission, it says, is to give evidence of our continuing transformation by loving people of all cultures and generations and inspiring them to know and follow Jesus. I mean, that's the proof. That's the evidence. If you want to gauge where you're at in this transformation process, just ask yourself, am I being a more loving person? Am I loving... More people? Am I loving people who are even different than me? And is God using me to inspire other people to follow Christ? I mean, that, that's, that's the gauge. That's what Jesus has called us to. Just one last thing. To assist all of this in happening, we, we, have, a, um, we have a project we're exploring, a building project to assist in in carrying out the the local and the regional and the the global vision. And I can't tell you too much about it right now, but just stay tuned because it's it's exciting and um, it's something that our our leadership is exploring right now. All right? All right, take a deep cleansing breath. Look at your neighbor and say, thank the Lord part one is over. (laughs) 
Hope he doesn't go as long on the second part. Part 2, the book of James, chapter 4. And really, it dovetails nicely with what I just talked about because basically in the section we're looking at today, James is answering the question, why do we need transformation? (laughs) Why do we need to be changed? What is it about us that, that screams out for God to change our lives? I mean, after all, aren't we just okay the way we are? And James would look at us today, even those of us who are Christians, and he would say, you know what, there's, there's still a lot that needs to be changed in you. Would, you. would you agree to that? There's still a lot that needs to be changed in me. Jesus not only wants to change our eternal destiny, he wants to change the whole orientation of our lives. In short, he wants to change us from self-centered to God-centered, from self-focused to God-focused, from self-absorbed to totally caught up in God. Listen to what James has to say about the transformation process when it comes to selfishness. Chapter 4, verse 1. If you could just listen while I read this passage. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. James wasn't really into PC, was he? I mean, he's talking to Christians. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit, that's probably the Holy Spirit, that He caused to live in us, envies intensely or is jealous over us? But, verse 6, He gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Verse 11, brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? If I were summarizing what James is saying here in this section, I would say it this way. Selfishness is a huge problem that causes huge problems. Let's talk about some of those problems. First of all, he says selfishness breeds conflict in relationships. Would any of us deny this? Think back to the last heated argument you had, the last conflict. Some of you don't have to think back very far. Was selfishness involved? Not on your part, of course, but on the part of that other person. Totally selfish. James would say, 
No doubt. Let's be honest. This self-centeredness starts out pretty early in our, in our existence, doesn't it? Think about it. You bring home from the hospital that wonderful bundle of joy. So precious. So wonderful. So cute. And you bring that little one home. So precious. So cute. And you put that child in its bed at night. And in the middle of the night, say 3 a.m., that precious little bundle of joy experiences a little pang of hunger, a little impulse. And does that precious little one have these thoughts? Oh, my mother and father are asleep, tired from a hard day of activity. And they've got to get up in a few hours and do it again. So it's only the courteous thing to do, the respectful thing to do, to suppress this little pang of hunger for a few more hours so that they can get their sleep. Do you think that thought enters the mind of that precious little infant? Or is it scream bloody murder until someone stumbles into the room with the stuff, the life-saving stuff? You know, it starts early in all of us, doesn't it? It's inbred in us. These desires that, that demand to be satisfied and satiated. And if those desires don't get curbed then that little precious little infant turns out to be a a terror as a toddler and a teenager and an adult. If there is not some intervention, I know adults who've been saved for 20 or 30 years, and yet it's still all about satisfy me, make me happy. Give me what I want, when I want it, or I'll cry and pout and take my toys and go home. There's got to be an intervention, doesn't there? There's got to be a transformation. James says, selfish desires and living just for me will wreak havoc in my life and in my relationships. It'll lead to constant arguing and fighting and bickering and quarreling and even killing. Selfishness is a huge problem in relationships, including, number two, our relationship with God. Because basically what he says is that selfishness blocks our prayers from being answered. God doesn't feel an obligation to answer self-focused prayers. Did you know that? Some of us are not getting our prayers answered because it's really just for us. You know, you, you've got a wife and you've, you're a wife and you've got a husband who's just not with it spiritually and you're praying, you're praying that God will save your husband so that your life will be easier. And God says, can you tweak that a little bit? <laughs> Can you maybe look at your motives a little bit? Because the real reason to pray for your husband to be saved is so that Jesus might receive all the glory that he's due from your husband's life. And if the residual effects make your life easier, well, praise God. Selfishness breeds conflict in relationships. It blocks prayers from being answered. Third, this is a tough one to swallow. Selfishness breaks covenant with God. When Christians live self-centered lives, it is akin, listen, in James' mind, it's akin to committing spiritual adultery. Now, we don't often think of it like this, do we? See, we're used to viewing our sin in terms of how it hurts us, how our sin messes things up for us, or maybe even for others. 
But James is saying, have you ever thought about how your selfish sin hurts God? And that's really the crux of the matter. And James gives this shocking analogy. He's saying that this pattern of of living for just me is tantamount to having an affair. You say, explain that to me. Okay? When you got saved, you gave your heart to Jesus Christ, right? You pledged your faithfulness and your devotion to Jesus. You shifted your allegiance to God. You basically entered into a covenant with God, much like a marriage covenant. And somewhere along the line, if you're saved, you said, Jesus, because of all that you've done for me, I'm giving you my heart. I'm pledging you my devotion. But now by choosing a self-centered lifestyle, you're basically breaking covenant, breaking faith. You're embracing the way of this world, James says. You become a friend of the world because that's how the world lives, all about me. And meanwhile, God's standing over here, hurt, betrayed, with feelings of jealousy, he says, stirring up within him like any spouse would be who's been betrayed. And James is saying to us who are Christians, he's saying, have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that you're having an affair on God and it grieves him deeply? That's what selfishness is and does. And the Lord's standing there saying, I thought, I, I thought you said you loved me supremely. Our self-centered living, Christians, cries out for transformation. Cries out for it, for change. We've got to understand that we can't change ourselves. It's the Spirit of God that changes us from the inside out, as we sang about. And getting saved is the starting point, really. You get saved, God comes into your life, and he begins to work, and he begins to change us. But we've got to humbly cooperate with him every step of the way throughout our whole lives if the selfishness is going to get rooted out of us that we were born with. It's the fourth thing he says. Selfishness is broken only by God's transforming grace. And then James lays out a pathway. Our part in the process of being transformed from self-centered to God-centered. He lays it out. It's short, it's simple, and it's crystal clear. First of all, he says you've got to humble yourself. Once, you, once your eyes have been opened to how you're living your life, you realize that that you've been unfaithful to God, the first thing is to humble yourself and don't be afraid to come close to God. Don't be afraid to come back. Come near to God, he says. You know, pride will always get in the way of your relationship with God. Always. Humble yourself, he says. Like the prodigal son who came to his senses and said, what was I thinking? What am I doing out here? What am I doing far away from the Father? It's so much better in the Father's house. I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go back to the Father. James says, humble yourself. Don't be afraid to run back home to come close if your heart has been humbled. And then give your heart back to God. Give back to God your heart's true allegiance and full devotion. Submit yourselves to God, he says. Lord, I admit it, I turned away from you. I've been living for my own selfish pleasures. It's so wrong. I'm coming back to you now. I'm giving you my heart again, Jesus. 
I'm giving you my allegiance and my devotion once again. And then he says, declare war on the one who is seducing you. Remember, it's an affair. And the one who is seducing us is who? It's the devil. He says, resist the devil. And if you're, coming, if you're on your way back to God, you've got to come to that point where you say, Satan, doggone it, you may have won that round in my life, but the fight is not over. I have, I have given my heart back to my Savior, Jesus Christ. I've given my heart back to him. And I stand with him. I stand against you. And in his strength, I'm on the offense now. And I'm taking back the ground that I gave to you. I'm taking it back. See, there's a militant side to being transformed. Well, you've got to get a little bit angry, a little bit ticked off at the enemy and what he's doing to you and your family and your life. Resist the devil, he says. Resist the devil. No more. And then he says, grieve deeply your unfaithfulness to God. Grieve, mourn, and wail, he says. Change your laughter to mourning. Now, there's a time for laughter in the Christian life, isn't there? A time for joy and rejoicing. But you know what? There's also a time for tears and weeping and grieving. Whenever I read this passage, I think of a 100-mile trip I took a few years ago. I was traveling, I was speaking somewhere, and I, for 100 miles I was in tears could hardly see the road. I'd, I'd done something that, it, that was, was wrong. It was sinful. It was wicked. I felt embarrassed and ashamed. And I knew I had hurt my God. And for a hundred miles, I drove and I said, God, I am so sorry. This is so wrong. It's so, it's so unlike the person you've made me to be. It's so untrue to you. Grieve, he says. Mourn, wail over your sin. You've been unfaithful to your God. And this probably won't happen until we see how deeply our sin hurts God. His grief becomes our grief. His tears become our tears. And then he says, confess. Honestly, confess your sin to God and be washed clean. Wash your hands, you sinners, he says. Purify your hearts. The essence of humility is confession. Sin often remains unconquered until it is uncovered and confessed. We're going to have communion together here in just a few minutes. The Lord's table. You're going to be exposed to the elements that represent the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And it is a wonderful time to confess and come clean. Now, it really needs to be happening daily in our lives. But if not that, then now before partaking of the Lord's table together. James says, confess your sins. Confess them and you will find mercy. He will lift you up. We say it a lot around here. There is no sin that you can commit that is outside God's wide and deep grace that we sang about a few minutes ago. You can always come back to God. Let me say that again. You can always come back to God. You have not sinned your way out of his grace. You haven't. I don't care what you've done. Come back, come back. But it's got to start with this humble confession. Lord, I was so wrong. Please, please forgive me. And the last thing he says is stop being prideful and judging other people for their sins. Who are you to judge your neighbor, he says. 
You know, we, we, sometimes we get all focused on other people. You know, this person needs to change and my spouse and my kids and my boss and all that. And, and James is saying, let God deal with them. You need to work on yourself in here. Don't get all focused on other people's sins and mess-ups. God will work in their life. You, you focus on this. The transformation process. 